Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Olga Olikar, here in the CSIS studio with my co-host, Jeffrey Mankoff. The nicely revamped CSIS studio. Yes, Hello. You, you can't see our studio, but um, it now has the logos of all of the CSIS podcasts attractively displayed around us. In this episode of Russian Roulette, we sat down with Andrei Bagritsky. Andrei is a consultant at the Pierce Center, a Moscow think tank. He's also a research fellow at the Center for Global Trends and International Organizations of the Diplomatic Academy of the Russian Foreign Ministry uh, and teaches courses at uh, Megimo University of the Russian Foreign Ministry. Uh, He has been participating in a number of track two working groups on U.S.-Russia strategic relations, including one that uh, we have done here at CSI. CSIS on crisis stability, and is a longtime follower and expert on arms control and nonproliferation issues. So we talked to Andre about Russian approaches to nonproliferation, about Iran and North Korea, about the nonproliferation treaty and its future, and the future of arms control more broadly. Let's get started. Andrei, welcome to Russian Roulette. Thanks for having me. So I wanted um, to take the opportunity of having you here to talk a little bit about how Russian perspectives on nonproliferation, how you go about it, how high priority it is, differ from American ones. You know, you've, you've been involved with both communities. What do you think are some of the core differences? Well, I would say that um, it's an important priority for Russia. If you look at, you know, all of the Russian documents, strategic documents, it's always named as a, as one of the priorities. And, uh, you know, being a nuclear power and being a nuclear superpower, it's it's one of the things you do. Mm-hmm. It's just you care about non-proliferation. Why? So, Why? Yeah. Uh, how, how does that work? Yeah, but I mean, uh, that's how it was uh, conceived when there is bipolar order and uh, there are five nuclear weapon states or less, you don't want to get new ones, and you sort of work together on different things not to make more nuclear weapon states because you just don't want that to happen. And, you know, cases like South African case, when we worked together and others, it it was something which we did during the Cold War and also non-proliferation treaty, which Mm -hmm. was happening against a backdrop of, you know, everything going wrong, the the Czechoslovakia thing, but then again, we, we negotiated and we signed that. So it was always important, and uh, it sort of continues to be, but it depends on on specific issues. So you brought up a couple of examples from the Cold War, which of course was a time when U.S.-Soviet relations were pretty bad, uh, and yet there was this imperative to cooperate on nonproliferation. We're back in a period now where U.S.-Russian relations are also pretty bad, one that often gets compared to the Cold War. So how has that deterioration affected both Russian views of nonproliferation and also U.S.-Russian cooperation around it? Um, I guess, um, you know, you have a very clear example of uh, Iran negotiations when the relations were terrible and probably at its worst when uh, after the Ukrainian crisis. And still, um, Russia participated in negotiating the JCPOA and has been, at some points, instrumental to, to negotiating the JCPOA. Um, we can discuss a little bit of 
what, what was the, the reasons for Russia mm-hmm. acting like this, but this affected mm-hmm. uh, the non-proliferation activities that did not uh, break down. With Let's come back to discussing the reasons. But yeah. yeah, sure. But, um, you know, generally, uh, there's also this, um, you know, your approach to the severity of the problem. So, for example, uh, Russia never sort of believes that Iran is going to build nuclear weapons. So there were concerns about proliferation of in, in wider um, things. There were concerns about uh, that uh, Iran will get this latent capability. There were concerns about this Iranian actions would provoke, you know, attack from Israel or from United States, and uh, Middle East will be in, in calamity. But Russia was never seriously, you know, threatened by a perspective of Iran building nuclear weapons. And you know, the the history shows that Iran didn't build nuclear weapons and wasn't really in intent intending of building them. So for, from that point of view, you can see that uh, if United States was seriously concerned, uh, that there would be a difference in approaches, right? And if US allies in the region would be more concerned, they would push for, for that. So I guess it goes by case, by case scenario. And uh, the non-proliferation part is also deeply connected to the, you know, general security part, your relations with the country part, and so on and so forth. Okay. So, well, since you mentioned the the JCPOA, um, of course, the U.S. has announced its intention to pull out of, of the agreement. Uh, how has that gone over in Russia, and what steps is, is Russia taking in response? It didn't go well. <laughs> um, I mean, the JCPOA, again, was... Um, in the, from the Russian point of view, it was not only non-proliferation issue, it was a security issue. Because if you remember 2013, there was a clear danger of Israel, you know, trying to take out uh, Iranian uh, nuclear infrastructure, which would mean another war in the Middle East. And Middle East is really not a very stable place. And just to remind you, Iran is a Russian neighbor, uh, we neighbor on Caspian Sea, and it's a big country. And... Um, one of the few functioning countries left in the Middle East. So <laughs> no one really wants Iran to, to you know, to be destroyed. And also, I'm Russia, not sure that's true. But yeah, well, <laughs> some, 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 yeah. some, some people would probably. But uh, again, uh, you know, if you don't destroy Iran, but you attack Iran, that's very, you know, good re- recipe to to getting nuclear Iran because. At some point, they would say, like, screw, we are building the bomb, whatever you do, and they can do it in underground facilities or whatever. So uh, Russia does, doesn't want that happening at all. So that was uh, one of the reasons why actually Russia came to negotiate this in the, in the first place. Uh, but now with the United States withdrawing, there is still a sense in Russia that we can try to save the deal from uh, falling apart. Uh, it's uh, waning. Uh, you know, it's you, you can see how from the talks with the people uh, that the possibility of this falling apart is growing. And uh, I would think that uh, if uh, there is no uh, breakthroughs on the trade with the European Union, if uh, US sanctions are making everybody stop dealing with Iran, then I think that Russia would be probably ready to tolerate some of the, you know, variations from the JCPOA to only make Iran stay uh, within the deal and not cross, you know, a lot of red lines 
not not to make Israel attack it because mm-hmm. Russia is also sort of trying to broker between Israel and and Iran in the Middle East. So uh, Russia would try to 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 support the JCPOA as long as possible. So what is the Russian perspective on U.S. approaches to arms control? I mean, one of the things I find is you know a constant in U.S.-Russia relations is that. Um, both countries' uh, policies make perfectly good sense to themselves, less so lately for the United States, but historically, uh, but are misunderstood by the other and are often, you know, the United States thinks it's doing something in pursuit of goal A and the Russians see it as actually pursuing goal B and goal B is nefarious and has something to do with undermining Russia. Um, and you could argue the reverse is true. So does Russia tend to view U.S. nonproliferation policies and plans in that context? I mean, of course, and it comes back to this uh, whole concept of you, you don't see just an isolated thing. Uh, so uh, United States are heavy-handed, uh, not uh, very interested in other countries' opinions. And uh, when the threat perceptions do not align, uh, it really looks like there might be something nefarious going on. Like in uh, the case of the Iraq War, for example. <laughs> right, but but <laughs> but that was like a strange uh, war, anyway. That was, but yeah. even the the Iran uh, thing, like during the nineties, uh, Russia was uh, planning to build a nuclear power plant in Iran, the Bushehr nuclear power plant. So it's a it's a light water reactor. The fuel uh, was planned to be supplied by Russia, taken out mm-hmm. by Russia. So it has like not very much of proliferation concern, frankly. But there was huge campaign of pressure on the side of United States, of Israel, not to build anything nuclear related with, uh, with Iran and in Iran. And for Russia, it was an economic matter because after the Soviet Union collapsed, our nuclear industry wasn't in the best shape. We needed foreign contracts. We needed money to, to sustain people so they wouldn't you know, just lose their, their job. And, uh, you know, there were talks at the time in Israel that maybe we should bomb Boucher when it's being built and before mm-hmm. the completion. So fast forward to 2015, and like everybody sort of agrees that Boucher has no proliferation concern, zero proliferation concern. No one is talking about bombing it. No one is talking about doing anything with it. So when you look back and say, like, look, what was that all about? So may- maybe, you know... U.S. and Israel were being disingenuous there, mm-hmm. and they just didn't want Russia to be there and hmm. uh, Iran to. And we can see example of that in in other spheres as well. So, yes, uh, Russia believes that U.S. actions on non-proliferation are also selective. They also very much dependent on relations between the countries. And you know the classic. I I, I keep getting back to Iran because this uh, things I do. You know the. U.S. had zero problems with the Iranian nuclear program under the Shah. You know, get enrichment, you know, build whatever you want, we'll give you any technology. Like, sure, please, go on, and that's no problem. Once you have Islamic revolution and a new regime, then all of a sudden, hey, there are the proliferation concerns. So, I mean, would, does Russia not worry slightly more about certain kinds of governments than others? Yeah, totally. So, yeah, sure. But, I mean, you ask about yeah. how, it, how it's right. viewed. I mean, both countries have the proclivity to be selective in their uh, in their memory and their enforcement priorities. I suppose. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. 
So, of course, the other big nonproliferation question today is uh, surrounding North Korea. Um, and, you know, here Trump and, and Kim Jong-un recently met and uh, there was an, an agreement uh, to pursue denuclearization without being very specific about what that would entail. Um, is Russia's view of North Korea's nuclear ambitions basically the same as, as with regard to Iran and other cases or does it see it somewhat differently? Well, the, the, the big difference is that uh, the PRK has nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. while Iran never had and didn't even have a like really functioning program to, to build ones. Um, there is this uh, tendency among the Russian expert community to a certain extent to say like, well, we don't care about your, you know the PRK's uh, nukes because they're not against us, uh, they're against the United States, so why should we care? When you talk to military people, they say, like, yeah, we are concerned. Like, we don't like nuclear weapon states, probably not really stable at our border. <laughs> like, that's not good. Right. And, uh, you know, because if you're a military, you have to put on the table all possible scenarios and think how you deal with that. So they are worried. Mm -hmm. uh, so Russia was always a part of all sorts of um, formats to deal with this uh, program. Uh, and did have total verifiable denuclearization of Korean Peninsula and there this famous uh, Russian Chinese uh, proposal of uh, you know dual freeze and then going into building this uh, beautiful architecture of uh, peace and security in uh, Northeast Asia. Mm -hmm. Would that include uh, removing the U.S. nuclear umbrella over South Korea? I would think so, yes. Yes, yes. It, because it, you have a beautiful architecture of security. Well, it, well, you don't need this anymore. Because, you know, it's, it's security for all, not only for South mm -hmm. Korea. And um, so when we have this, you know, uh, Kim-Trump summit, oh, which sort of was based on the ideas, quid pro quo and, you know, step by step, uh, Russia was uh, fast to, you know, to note that, well, actually, they've been implementing the Russian-Chinese um, scenario all along. I don't sure that Trump and Kim are very interested in building a security architecture in <laughs> Northeast Asia, though. But, uh, you know, Russia would want to, to stay in the loop mm -hmm. uh, of any future um, things happening. And that's why there was Lavrov visit and uh, Kim was invited to come to Moscow and to meet with President Putin. Or maybe not Moscow, maybe it would be Vladivostok for, for mm -hmm. the forum, but still. Uh, but Russia is sort of, you know, likes the way the, the things are moving because when uh, there was really huge military tensions uh, before, that was also like a problem, especially there was these scenarios that if United States would be shooting uh, the PRK's missiles, the anti-missiles would be flying, you know, across uh, Russian airspace mm -hmm. to, to hit the PRKs. Right. That was like, would, would be a mess. Right. And, uh, that was something that came up um, fairly recently. And I think, I mean, I, I recall the, there was some surprise yeah. from Russian experts that these things didn't have a self-destruct mechanism. That they would actually <laughs> keep going. No, yeah, they, they would. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Right. Well, and also this gets into Russian concerns about ABM systems more generally. Of course, yeah, because if it, uh, they say that uh, U.S. troops in, deep, in South Korea are on the table, so it would include probably the Saad uh, out of uh, South Korea, which is an irritant for, for Chinese and, you know. Oh, the Fed, yeah. Yeah, yes. and uh, Russia is also doesn't really like U.S. radars around its its borders. So, yeah, um, if, if there is a zone of 
freedom and you know democracy and peace loving in the peninsula and US troops are out, yeah, Russia would be better off with that. During um, the Obama administration, um, the US government put a bit of a premium on nonproliferation issues. There were these nuclear summits. Russia like started off, Russia started off participating, but then by the end was out. What's your take on that story? What what was the what was driving Russian attitudes uh, towards that format, and what does that say about Russia's attitudes towards multilateral formats more generally? Right. So I uh, would just maybe clarify: it's, it was non-proliferation per se; it was nuclear security, right? Which is sort of slightly different thing, and but related. Uh, no, no, totally. Mm-hmm. But it, it's more of an you know make sure that those nuclear materials wouldn't get in the yeah. hands of maybe terrorists or whatever. Right. Which is a proliferation Not, concern, but it's a different right. kind of proliferation. Right. So um, Russia did participate uh, in those when they actually started with Obama and uh, Medvedev mm-hmm. and Reset. Uh, but as relations were getting better, worse and worse and worse, uh, the last summit Russia declined to go. There was an official you know, statement from the Russian foreign ministry that uh, basically... U.S. and frankly, the more process went on, the less Russia liked the concept mm-hmm. because it was from the beginning U.S.-led. U.S. was picking the agenda. U.S. was inviting mm-hmm. countries they wanted to invite. They were not inviting countries they mm-hmm. didn't want to invite. For example, Iran was never invited mm-hmm. despite having a nuclear power plant and uh, significant nuclear facilities. But, you know, U.S. didn't like Iran. So here we go. Um, and, I mean... I've heard stories from the Europeans that, you know, some of the Europeans were not invited and they feel that they were, like, uh, left out. So it wasn't only Russian uh, not liking that. But uh, as uh, relations degraded, at some point Russia just decided, you know, we're not going to Obama summit. And it was, like, the last summit anyway. Mm-hmm. So they were already started to think how it would look without the summits because the process was over and it was moving to the IAA, Mm -hmm. uh, which Russia is much more comfortable with. And they have those um, IAA ministerial conferences Mm -hmm. on nuclear security now, which Russia did go and did participate and had no problem with doing. So I guess at that point it was um, partly understanding that um, there would be a new architecture anyway, and partly not wanting to play along with uh, United States, because Russia... Actually, this is the thing that Ross Atom is pushing our it's, it's not even the foreign ministry that uh, nuclear security is something which each state uh, does by itself. Mm-hmm. And this is how it's written in like an IA statute and whatever. So, uh, you know, trying to put on the countries some burden of doing something uh, lacks legal authority, lacks any other authority. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, making other countries do whatever you want is generally not the things Russia likes. So as a uh, non-proliferation specialist, though, what do you think of that? Because there's a logic to not forcing other countries to do things, but creating a certain amount of peer pressure and potentially a certain amount of support to make sure that the standards are similar because, yes, it's every country's responsibility, but we all potentially suffer if somebody falls down on that responsibility. It is true, and I mean it's not a new question. Mm-hmm. How how much are you balancing what which country does with what uh, you know generally which country wants to do? Mm-hmm. And as we've seen, it wasn't always uh, solved in the you know this 
part of doing sure. more, as is very well seen with additional protocol to IA safeguards, which countries just don't sign and mm-hmm. don't ratify, and big countries like Argentina and Brazil just say we are not signing, mm-hmm. and everybody's saying like, okay, so we what sort can you of, do? <laughs> Sovereignty. We sort of uh, living with that. Um, I mean, you are right that uh, the more we do in this sense, the better it would be. Uh, I guess um, there's always, again, a balance between if you want to have an inclusive process or if you want to have an effective process. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So sort of people who are left out wouldn't like it, Mm -hmm. and it might be a bad thing, but also if you're doing it on your own and you bring like-minded countries, it's always, you know, process moves faster and uh, it's more uh, nice to, to have those kind of summits. I don't know what would be the right way to do, but I mean... There are still so many things to do in nuclear security which are not being done despite the summits, despite mm-hmm. the, the whatever. And what mean, are some of those things? Like, What are the main priorities? Yeah, what I mean, like, for example, if you took the nuclear security at IAA, which is sort of has to help everybody um, to enhance nuclear security and provide this help, they don't have, uh, they almost don't have a budget. Uh, they, it's mainly voluntary contribution. It's not, you know part of IA budget. So there is this uh, IPAS missions, which is uh, each, each country can request that IA would come examine their system and say like, look, you can do this and this and this mm-hmm. to enhance your nuclear security. Mm-hmm. So uh, even that IA does not have, you know, money to provide it to everybody at once. So I mean... So resources. Yeah, right? like resources uh, and uh, things like countries are not really investing in and despite this um, summit process because summit process was a lot of it was you know rising the awareness uh, and you know you get the photo op with us president mm-hmm. for doing something at home which is good i mean you know no no one would say that bad but probably more less ad hoc process more stable process would be better and maybe it would be less political controversial, which would be good for everybody in the end. But now, on the current U.S. administration, we don't see any interest in that, mm-hmm. which is actually very surprising, because Trump keeps talking about terrorism. Like, terrorism is something, like, everybody agrees is bad. So why not cooperate against nuclear terrorism? Why not sell it as something very sexy and have some initiative on uh, fighting nuclear terrorism? How worried are you about nuclear terrorism? Well, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I will say I'm not terribly worried about nuclear terrorism. I think this is really hard to do, and I. Yeah, but but that, mm-hmm. that, again, it's hard to do without state support. I but, mean, it's it's one thing to think about, you know, uh, some small group of radicals somewhere getting hold of a nuclear weapon. What would they even do with it? On the other hand, you know, if you have a group like Hezbollah, you carry let's it say, around. Yeah, you, you yeah, play right. catch. I mean, but if you frame uh, nuclear security as combating nuclear terrorism, it looks much more sexy and you can, you know, sell right, it. Right. You can sell it to people who are worried about nuclear weapons. You can sell it to people who are worried about terrorism. terrorism. Right. No, I mean, I have no problem yeah, with strong yeah. safeguards and all of these things, yeah, but yeah. I do inherit. You know what I mean? Like, it's not only nuclear terrorism. I mean, if you look at radiological sources, mm-hmm. like dirty that, bombs, th- that's a concern. I mean. Yeah. Though, and, again, it's it's hard It's hard to handle the material. It's hard to manage. Yeah, it's, you know, it's yeah. a tough thing to operationalize. There are a lot easier True. ways to create a mass casualty incident. But probably that would have a lot of, you know, panic effect. It yeah. would. And it would. 
a big publicity but for again, anybody who does it. It's really hard. So you could there there are easier ways. Yeah, I mean, you can buy Kalashnikov and shoot people at the stadium. Yeah. 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 Sandra, do you see Russia taking more of a leading role globally on counterterrorism issues, or do you see it kind of stepping back and with this um, minatum, every it's everybody's own responsibility? Sorry, counterproliferation issues. Uh, I don't see Russia as being a leader on counterproliferation mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, Russia does not like generally to interfere in other countries' affairs. It sees it as counterproductive. It doesn't normally bring you results you want. So what Russia normally prefers is to organize or to be part of a coalition of preferably within the Security Council and have all the legal authority, that's where Russia gets comfortable with, with doing things uh, internationally, unless this is point of, you know, mm-hmm. special uh, concern where Russia can act unilaterally. But so maybe if Ukraine would be building nuclear weapons, that, that would be <laughs> a point of concern for Russia. Uh, but, uh, you know, Myanmar not, you know, doing everything which is has to do according to its mm-hmm. safeguards mm-hmm. agreements would be a point of concern, mm-hmm. but not, you know, uh, urgent priority. So, yeah, more participating in a wider mechanism, not probably acting unilaterally. You took part in um, a working group that uh, we were running here at CSIS on crisis stability. Um, and we've got the link to that, uh, the report from that working group uh, in the show notes, uh, also the papers that were written. But I'd like you to weigh in a little bit on, uh, you know, the, we talked about a lot of things, both nuclear and conventional. Um, I mean, the whole idea was to think about how you keep crises from escalating. From a Russian perspective, what did you learn from having those conversations about U.S. perspectives? Did I, I mean, you spent a lot of time talking to Americans, so I doubt anything surprised you, but perhaps there's uh, something that you think really needs to be brought home to Moscow. Yeah, I mean, a um, couple of things which you you don't get from just reading newspapers, mm-hmm. or uh, and they're probably not uh, that much connected to crisis stability. Uh, the one thing is that uh, how mm, different are, you know, threat perceptions. Mm-hmm. And generally, you know, the, the whole idea that, um, you know, escalate to de-escalate, for example, is a thing. It's it's really remote in Moscow. You, do, you don't have, can conceptualize that, that people really think this is real. People really think that Russia is doing this because... I mean, it's, it's not a big topic in Russia anyway, but even if you read those articles, you see... The, do they mean this? Do they don't know the facts? Do they, like, what, what's the issue? You come here and you see that people really care about it and really invested about that. And also, for example, the issue about the Russia and the Baltics. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you mean, generally in Russia, there is no too much concern over the Baltics. Russia is not very interested in the Baltics. There is not too much going on there anyway. And if you talk to the, you know, people from the Baltics, experts from the Baltics, they'll say, like, yeah, I mean, probably Russia is not occupying us tomorrow. And uh, the things they would really uh, care is that, you know, the relationship between Russia and the West are getting lower and lower. And, you know, they would be getting a problem because of that, not Mm -hmm. because of some specific Russian interest in the Baltics. Mm Uh, but then you come to those sorts of uh, meetings and people are really afraid that Russia would be invading the Baltics or they would really, you know, go for this... Uh, uh, what, it's all about the Suvalki gap. Suvalki gap, right. Yeah. It's like 
really, like Swalke Gap. And um, yeah, it was uh, interesting to talk to some Europeans and they're like, have you been to Swalke Gap? It's like, there's nothing there. It's like forests and swamps. It's not very, you know, good for moving. Can't, uh, can't get a bunch of tanks through it, is that what no, you're no, saying? No, 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 not really. So it's it's very interesting to see that things you were reading and, you know, hearing about, people really believe in this and really care about this. And uh, this is actually um interesting takeaway that maybe Russia should do something about it. Maybe Russia should come to people and explain more and talk about this more because people are really concerned. Mm-hmm. And in Moscow, it's, a lot of times it's just dismissed as, you know, they are mm-hmm. inventing excuses for mm-hmm. being mad at us or this Russophobia or whatever. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's a real concern. Yeah, mm-hmm. but does Russia benefit from that kind of, I don't know, paranoia in some ways, though? <sighs> If you're playing three-dimensional chess, then maybe you are benefiting. <laughs> but uh, Russia generally wants to have good relations with the West. Russia wants to sanctions to be lifted. Russia wants to trade with everybody and get investments and technology and whatever. So, you know, we, and we have a World Cup currently, which 25,000 Americans are coming, mm-hmm. and which was really hard to get tickets <laughs> back because, like, all are bought by the U.S., um, football fans or soccer fans in, in your uh, case. So, uh, you know, Russia is still part of this uh, global system, which now is in some ways, you know, closed and in some ways broken, but it's still part of this. And Russia would frankly want everybody to just accept uh, its, you know, approach to the world and live with it and have beautiful relations uh, ever leave after. It alone. No, I mean, like, no, <laughs> engage yeah. with it, but in a good sense. Yeah. Uh, the, I, the, another question, how feasible is that? But so Russia doesn't really need Baltics to fear invasion in order to, you know, do whatever. That's my view. So, I mean, I think there's the flip side of this, which is the irrational beliefs that Russians have about American policy, oh, yeah. right? Totally. Um, and you mentioned one of them in the event we did to launch the crisis stability report, which is this belief that the Americans plan a bolt from the blue attack on um, with conventional weapons on Russian nuclear yep. forces. Um, because why you have so many conventional weapons? Why? Do, yeah, exactly. Um, why? Why do you have so many non-strategic nuclear weapons? Why do you have so many conventional weapons? With, right. So uh, it's, it's yeah, um, back and forth and back and forth. No, but it's an. And I think the missile defense conversation is a very similar one. Yeah. And the United States arguably has tried to go to Russia and explain, no, that's not what we mean. And that's not worked. I mean, on missile defense, certainly on the bolt from the blue, I think it's less understood that that's a perception. I think on the missile defense issue, part of the problem was that the U.S. itself was of more than one mind about what it was ultimately for. And, you know, if you're sitting in Moscow, you can sort of pick and choose which interlocutor you want to listen to. Right. Well, and the same thing happens when Americans watch right. Russian strategic yeah. debates, or right? Raid, uh, well, well, yeah. And this is exactly, I think, what happened with this escalate to deescalate notion. Like there were Russian commentators writing about this at one point and in people in the West. Yeah, well, and there's some people who are still, and still, still, and yeah. still yes, no. And people in the West seized on that and say, well, look, even if it's not in Russia's nuclear we doctrine. We yeah. Yeah. Somebody's thinking about it. Right, and somebody is. People yeah. are always thinking about all sorts right. of things. And the job of military planners is to prepare for worst-case scenarios. And Which that's sometimes what they do. is counterproductive when it gets out of hands. So, yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a good point uh, that, you know, those things are not really tractable. But No, I'm just wondering what the way forward – I mean, you, you, yeah. you say you come away with it with a sense that maybe we should – you know, try harder to explain to the Americans that, no, that's not what we're doing. Um, I wonder 
if a better solution is to explain to Russians, yes, the Americans really think this. So we have to adapt yeah. our policy to the fact that they think this, and we're probably not going to talk them out of it. And I would argue right. the same is true for the United States in dealing with Russia, yeah. that we're not going to convince them that we're right and they're wrong. We might be able to find policies that mitigate some of their threat perception. In other words, we should try diplomacy. We should try diplomacy. I would, I would add to that that... Um, I mean, you're right. It's very important to understand that those people really have those opinions. That they're not just, you know, lying or you know, coming up with something. And it's sometimes really counterintuitive, and it's hard to believe that people would believe crazy things, right? right. Or or things we believe to be crazy, which make um, total sense for them. So that's one thing. The second thing would probably be to do all possible, you know, explanation. So that people who are not interested or could be, you know, in between mm -hmm. would get at least the information. Right. So not, not, you know, to have this mm -hmm. uh, one-sided discussion. Uh, and uh, third thing is, uh, yeah, right, you have diplomacy and, and we talk and uh, maybe, yeah, have to start with that, like, we accepted this and we accept this. Can we like do something while accepting both of these things? Right. And yeah. like overarching. We we, we, ha we hold these completely incompatible viewpoints. Yeah. Okay. Let's put right. that aside. Let's, as, let's accept that. Let's, yeah. Let's... And then think. And that's actually sometimes frustrating when you come to those sorts of meetings because, you know, for first day people just exchange, uh, you know, their views you of talk what. Talk past each other. Yeah. Yeah. And then you like. On day two, you're okay. We, we established that this people believe this and this people believe this. Could have just started with that, and I, I mean, I, I think that's what we need to be doing more and more of is just yeah. um, recognizing that these positions exist mm -hmm. and moving forward. Yeah, I agree. So we've been talking about uh, nonproliferation in with regard to third countries, but of course, there's also a lot of concerns about nuclear security, disarmament, arms control, just in the bilateral U.S.-Russia context. So maybe we should talk about that for a minute too. Um, we have the, uh, the NPT review conference coming up here soon. Um, how do you assess the, the positions of U.S. and Russia ahead of that conference? Is, how is the, the whole regime holding up? On July 1, we'll be having the 50th anniversary of uh, signature of NPT. Mm -hmm. It was opened for signature. And uh, in 2020, we'll be having the review conference, which will be the anniversary. It's 50 years uh, since the first one, um, since the first review conference in 1970. So those, you know, uh, round numbers are always a time when you can reflect on uh, how it's going. And it's not going particularly well. And um, part of it is that uh, non-nuclear weapon states and nuclear weapon states are still fighting because one believes that others are not disarming fast right. enough, which was like which they've been fighting since the signing of the NPT. Now, uh, but the other thing is that uh, nuclear weapon states are not, you know, united anymore, and it used to be the case. Uh, again, even uh, during uh, hard times. Uh, we managed to come up with a joint statement of P5. Mm -hmm. That everyone agreed that, that arms control was basically a good idea. Well, but we were holding on to our nuclear weapons nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, we weren't going to give them all up, but that yeah. we were willing to... Yeah, yeah, we're we're working, towards yeah, or full yeah, disarm, yeah. working towards... Full disarm, At least doing something. So the Chinese made a glossary of nuclear terms, mm -hmm. which was in five languages. It was fine. Um, but... Uh, 
it's not even that anymore. The last um, preparatory committee, which was in uh, Geneva uh, this spring, they didn't come up with a joint communique. Mm-hmm. So because of uh, Russian and uh, U.S. Uh, bitter relations, and uh, even more than that, like I was following the discussion of, of, the, of the review conference, and it was like at some point, is this nuclear non-proliferation treaty review conference? Because everybody is talking about chemical weapons because of you know Syria mm-hmm. and uh, Skripal case. So you see this huge flooding of uh, and um, you know the issues which are not the core of the. the uh, discussion coming in and you know preventing anybody from meaningful dialogue so we might as well and we have no progress on any front on arms control or disarmament so we have nothing to show to other countries so uh, yeah we can totally see how in 2020 we again are not having any uh, final document and uh, countries more and more disillusioned with the whole process and they have this treaty mm-hmm. uh, the ban treaty mm-hmm. uh, treaty on right. prohibition of uh, nuclear weapons which was opened for signature last uh, September and or it was late August or last September uh, anyway and uh, now it uh, has something like 12 countries ratified it uh, not too much but you know it's it's moving in that direction and uh, it's again a big irritant for both United States and Russia and also probably not complicated things to come up with some sort of conclusion so um yeah it, it's very messy and very complicated and um you know the npt is like a really good treaty everybody thinks that it's it should be there and um it's a balance between which everybody wants but again which everybody can get but the implementation of the treaty and especially those you know views on the treaty and how it should work are getting more and more divergent over time. I mean, it's a good treaty because it lets everybody say that they're on the same page and agree, even though they don't, right? The nuclear weapon states don't really want to commit to disarming, right. and the non-nuclear weapon states really would like them to. Um, like like many good treaties, it's based on everybody being it's based able on to fudge. Yeah, being able to lie to themselves a little bit, and you know part of the reason for the frustration of the non nuclear weapon states is it's been a long time and they're sick yeah, of it. It's been fifty years, and well. I think the inability of the nuclear weapon states to come to an agreement is it's differently interesting because they agree on everything to oh, do yeah. with the NPT. They disagree with the non nuclear weapon states, but they their position has not in any way changed over the course of. Uh, all this time, so well, with a caveat that I think the current administration in the United States is perhaps less committed to the goal of disarmament as oh, a yeah. principle oh, yeah. than any of its predecessors. Well, so nobody been. was committed to the goal of disarmament. As well, well, they weren't committed to full disarmament, but they were but committed also, to yes, yeah. no, absolutely, of reductions, yes. of reductions. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's possibly true. Um, and well, the, the, the caveat again is that you can before you could you could always say like, look. We signed this new START treaty. We mm-hmm. went to yeah, 100, 500, and you know, here we go. We are disarming. What else do you want? Now we don't have too much of the success stories. We, we just, we're we fulfilling just... the new START treaty, right? Mm-hmm. But in uh, 2020 review conference, mm-hmm. we might be at a point where there will be no more new START treaty, and INF right. might be dead at that point. Right. Which would be even harder to explain to everybody how are we actually um, contributing to disarmament. Yeah, so, yeah. No, that I, would be awkward. I don't have a good answer to that. No, um, a lot, a lot of people problem. don't have a good answer to that. So, yeah, unless something 
happens if there's a breakthrough with DPRK, for example, which can be showcased as look. Mm-hmm. And yeah, JSPOA is gone, which was also like one of the things yes. which everybody was saying. Success look, story. look, non-proliferation is working. So yeah, if if not for DPRK, I guess there is no viable alternatives because. CTBD US mm-hmm. is not interested. Right. Um, FMCT is not moving mm-hmm. uh, very well. So I don't know. It's a bad time for arms control. Yeah. And non-proliferation. And non-proliferation. Yeah. Andre, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, that is it for our show today. Thank you for joining us again. Uh, there's a link to Andre's bio uh, and some of his publications in the show notes. You can also find there uh, the recent CSIS report uh, on U.S.-Russian crisis stability. And also the event where we launched that report where Andre was speaking. Now, for those of you who haven't, uh, you should subscribe to the podcast on iTunes uh, and leave us a rating and review as well. If you're not an iTunes user, you can check us out and subscribe on Google Play or SoundCloud. Uh, and once again, keep spreading the word. In addition to spreading the word, uh, if you have questions, if you have concerns, if there are things you want us to talk about on Russian Roulette, send us a mailbag question. Send it via email to rep at csis.org with the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. We look forward to hearing from you. You can also follow the program on Twitter at CSIS Russia, and you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Olya Oliker, and Jeff is at, at Dr. J. Mankoff. And, of course, big thank you once again to everyone who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. That includes our research assistant and program coordinator, Cyrus Newland, our intern, Kimberly Schuster, and the whole CSIS External Relations and iLab team. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Thank you.